Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey everyone, I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you value this podcast as a free educational resource, you can support the show and get access to past bonus episodes by making a monthly donation at patreon.com slash words for granted. Thanks to Carolyn, Jeff, Skooky, and Vanessa for your recent contributions. If Patreon's not your thing, but you still want to support the show, you can make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash wordsforgranted. Now, a quick note on the audio you're about to hear. It's a remote interview with Tracy Weldon, who you'll learn more about in a minute. But when Tracy did the interview, she was in an office in a building with central AC that she couldn't turn off. And I've done some audio finessing on her vocal track, but... Even so, you're still able to hear the hum of the AC a little bit. Um, not Tracy's fault. These things happen. We're both busy. Scheduling is tough, etc. Um, so hopefully it's not too distracting because we really did have a great conversation. And without further ado, let's jump right in. Okay, everyone, welcome to this interview episode of Words for Granted. Today I'm speaking with linguist, professor, author, and advisory board member of the soon-to-be Oxford Dictionary of African American English, Tracy Weldon. Tracy, thanks for coming on to the show. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here. Take a minute or two to tell us, in your own words, who you are and what you do. Sure. So I am a sociolinguist. Uh, I study mostly varieties of American English with a particular focus on African-American language varieties, um, including uh, the Gullah Geechee um, language, which is spoken along the coast of South Carolina, Georgia, and parts of Florida. I have been at the University of South Carolina for 22 years now uh, with a joint appointment in the English department and the linguistics program where I've taught any variety of undergraduate and graduate courses in linguistics and sociolinguistics and uh, in recent years have moved into administration and currently serving as a dean of the graduate school. And as I mentioned, you're also on the advisory board of the Oxford Dictionary of African American English. So give us the elevator pitch on what the project is, its impetus, what will be recorded in the dictionary, et cetera. Yeah, so we're really early. They've just launched the program. I am serving on an advisory board with uh, nine other uh, linguists and language scholars. It really is a, a dream team that they've assembled. And we will be working, of course, with Henry Louis Gates from Harvard University. Um, it will be published by Oxford University Press. Uh, they have also assembled a team of lexicographers, uh, many of whom are also linguists, and a team of researchers. So we all together will, will be the team that will assemble this dictionary. We haven't actually met yet as a full team, so a lot of the details about you know, what will be covered and how we will go about 
uh, pulling the dictionary together are still details to be determined. But the idea is that we will document the contributions of African-American English to the vocabulary of American English. Um, It's an extensive contribution that has been underexplored and underacknowledged for so many years. And so I'm really excited that we now have this opportunity to document, to define, and to celebrate the contributions of African-American English to the American lexicon. So it sounds like this project is going to be in some way modeled after the Oxford English Dictionary. In other words, that entries are presented with historical usages, etymological information, and so on. That is my understanding. And again, we haven't, we haven't met as a team to talk about it, but I, I, I do anticipate that it will have um, you know, a lot of the, the contextual information around the, the, the lexical entries themselves and, and some information also about African-American English as well, which will make it much more accessible to the, the wider public than much of the incredible work that linguists have been doing for the last few decades. So it's just really an exciting opportunity. Right. There are no doubt hundreds or thousands of academic articles that have been written on African-American English over the years, but you can't exactly find them on the shelves at your local bookstore. And I guess even if you could, the average person probably doesn't want to read them given, you know, what academic writing is. Now, um, I, I know that you haven't met your, you haven't met with your team yet, but I'm wondering how you're actually going to go about documenting all of the entries. I imagine you'll be drawing from both the written record and audio recordings as well, because this is not Old English that we're dealing with here. We actually have recordings of African-American English from, you know, from, say, the early 20th century. My understanding is that we will be all-encompassing, so we will be looking at both written and spoken word. I think we will probably also look at more contemporary uses on, you know, the Internet, Um, So it will be a truly diachronic uh, representation of of the African-American vocabulary. Okay. Yeah. Very, very exciting work. And uh, last question about this. Do you have a target deadline for when this dictionary will hit the market? The plan is to have uh, something out in three years. I'm sure that it it will be an ongoing project, but we should have a a, a product to deliver um, in three years. Okay. So... Let's take this opportunity to, you know, in the in the best way that we can in just 30 or 40 minutes, try to really paint a picture of African-American English. This is something that I've talked about on the show now and again, but never in a full comprehensive sort of way. Um, so again, I don't have delusions about this being a, uh, a complete introduction, but a brief introduction. So uh, let's start with when, where, and how did African-American English emerge? Wow. You started with the easy question. <laughs> you, you know, the, the origins of African-American English actually have been a topic of debate among linguists for, for many years. Um, when I started graduate school, um, you know, a, a few decades ago now, it was a hotly contested debate Uh, between two primary camps that were sort of known within linguistic circles as the dialectologist and the creolist hypotheses about the origins of African-American English. What's the difference between the two? 
So the dialectologist hypothesis traces the origins of African-American English back to uh, British English roots. The idea being that the lexicon, the vocabulary of African-American English is primarily English and the structure is primarily English and the distinctive features that seem to to be characteristic of African-American varieties but not found in other varieties of American English are likely to be retentions of earlier British English features that got retained in African-American speech communities but lost in others. That was a a theory that, that kind of started with an acknowledgement that large proportions of African-Americans were initially on Southern plantations during the plantation era and would have picked up Southern American varieties of English. And the isolation of the plantations themselves would have allowed for, you know, some distinctive characteristics to have been preserved and to have, you know, innovated in in particular ways to the African-American speech community. And then post-slavery, you know, northward and westward migrations would have taken some of those southern features to other parts of the country. The competing theory, the Creolist hypothesis, attributes those distinctive features to an earlier history of African-American English that was a Creole history. And so, of course, the, the term Creole is used in linguistics to refer to contact varieties when speakers of languages that are not mutually intelligible come together and don't share a common language, what happens in some instances is that a contact variety emerges as that common form of communication. And if it is passed on to generations of speakers as their first language, it becomes what we describe as a Creole. And so, you know, that kind of contact between English and West African varieties would have been made possible through the the Atlantic slave trade, which brought together speakers of those varieties and the need for communication. And so the plantation creoles, the theory is, uh, were the earliest stages of what is now known as African-American English. Post-slavery, those varieties would have come into more contact with English dialects and undergoing a process known as decreolization, where they became more English-like but preserving some of those earlier Creole-like features, which would be responsible for the distinctive uh, features that are still found in African-American English. So those are the two sort of camps we don't actually know. We probably won't ever know. And the truth probably lies somewhere in between. I mean, if if I'm asked what my opinion is, I always say that African-American English is is English. I don't... um, contest that. And I think, you know, we have to recognize, of course, that the the structure and the vocabulary is is largely English. But I also think it's improbable that, you know, a group of speakers would have learned English as a second language and not transferred some features from their native languages, their first languages, into the target language. Yeah. And perhaps we should address that African-American English, although we call it by one name, is not actually one thing. And that African-American English spoken today is also not the same language that emerged in the early days of Southern plantations. It's an important point, and I think it's one that even we as linguists need to remind ourselves of. The earliest research on African-American English really focused on the vernacular end of the, of the continuum. So, you know, a lot of focus on the kinds of 
distinctive grammatical, morphological, phonological features that were considered non-standard vis-a-vis mainstream standard English. But what we really haven't paid much attention to as, as linguists is what some now refer to as standard African-American English, right? In other words, um, standard grammatical constructions, but with uh, certain, you know, phonological you know, or pronunciation features or even prosodic features or discourse features or vocabulary that are unique to the African-American speech community. So in other words, um, you know, ways of, of sort of representing one's racial or ethnic identity, but without drawing upon some of the, the, the more salient non-standard features that have gotten so much attention in the, in the linguistic literature. The other thing that we have only recently started paying more attention to is the regional variation that exists. Recent research has you know, started to look at some of those, those differences particularly in the area of um, pronunciation or accent, but also in terms of vocabulary features and the like. And of course, like any other language variety, social class and gender identity and age, all of these factors contribute to the ways in which African-American English gets realized. So it is important to look at it as sort of an umbrella term for what, you know, might be considered many African-American Englishes. Sure. And uh, I I do want to talk about vocabulary and phonology in just a moment. But for now, let's stick with some of the more sociolinguistic aspects of African-American English. Um, Particularly, let's start with code switching. I think many many of our listeners here know what code switching is. But nonetheless, could you define the term for us as if we don't know what code switching is and then explain its role within African-American English and its uh, speech community. The idea is that there are speakers who control different varieties. I think variety is a, a, a convenient term, you know, when you have difficulty sort of drawing distinctions between, you know, what might be considered a separate language or a dialect of a given language. And I think code switching can refer to any of those kinds of switches where you're sort of moving out of one set of linguistic norms into another. Um, And that can be triggered, you know, by any number of factors, who you're talking to, your audience, your setting, the topic itself, the ways in which you want to represent your identity in any particular moment. And it happens quite a bit in in African-American English, in large part because many African-Americans, particularly those that are sort of, you know, operating at higher levels of the socioeconomic spectrum and are communicating with speakers of of different varieties of English, will sort of move in and out of, um, you know, more vernacular uses of African-American English, uh, depending on their setting, perhaps, you know, the, the work environment versus their their home environment. I actually recently published a book on middle class African American English where I um, talk about my own kind of code switching strategies. I recorded myself in a number of different settings, talking to my family, uh, lecturing, um, you know, talking to, to to coworkers and the like, and just sort of looking at the kinds of linguistic choices that I'm making, usually below the level of conscious awareness, of course. A lot of this just sort of happens automatically. 
Um, but, you know, the kinds of, of switches that I would make depending on my setting and purpose and so on and so forth. And to code-switching African-American English speakers whose first language is likely some variety of African-American English, um, I, I don't want to generalize too much here, but what do you think that, that native language and those native, ling- ling- those native linguistic norms, uh, uh, what do you think those mean to these speakers? I want to be, you know, careful not to generalize because I do think that everyone's experience is different. And, you know, even siblings growing up in the same family will have different identities and probably approach language differently depending on, on the circumstances. But, but for me, I can speak for myself, African-American English really is my language of comfort, right? It is, it is the way that I communicate when I am not necessarily thinking you know, about how I'm being perceived by others, um, not paying attention to, you know, particular um, expectations of professionalism or, um, you know, the white gaze, but just sort of being myself unfiltered. It's, of course, the language that um, I learned at home. So it, it, it is my language of, of family and, and friendship. Um, and so I imagine that that is true for many, certainly not all. Um, You know, I I have uh, teenage sons who are being raised in a a racially integrated neighborhood and school district and are sort of coming to African-American English later in life. And, and, you know, sort of the reverse of, of, you know, my experience, having been raised in a predominantly African-American community and then going to a predominantly white institution for college. So I do think that African-Americans sort of experience African-American English in different ways and have different relationships to it. But um, that's what it's been for me. What is your reaction to when non-Black folks judge a Black person's speech as not sounding Black? Or even when one Black person judges another Black person's speech as not sounding Black? That's a hard one for for me. I do, you know, I I mentioned the white gaze earlier. I, I do think that many African-Americans navigate, you know, their daily interactions with this sort of pressure to to meet certain expectations. And it it can be a heavy burden at times. It is interesting to me that I have had non-African Americans ask me, you know, what it feels like not to sound black. And I don't know if that's intended to be a compliment or an insult, um, but, you know, it always surprises me that, that the assumption is that the way I'm presenting myself, you know, in, in this sort of work setting, which is where those comments usually come in, is all there is to me, right? Um, because, for, you know, for, for many, you know, especially um, middle-class African-American speakers, there's a mask that we often wear to sort of satisfy those, those sort of expectations in mainstream settings that we're able to remove when we're in the comfort of our homes and communities. Um, you know, and, and of course it suggests that there's only one way to sound black. And of course there are many ways to sound black as there are many ways to, you know, sound anything. <laughs> um, so there. There's a tendency to, to kind of essentialize, you know, what African-American English is in ways that, that can be problematic and, and, and constraining 
Okay, we're going to take a quick break from this conversation so I can tell you about the Lingoda Language Sprint Challenge, an intensive two-month language learning program that you just may be able to participate in for free. So what's Lingoda? Lingoda is an online language learning school taught by professional language teachers. They offer 24-7 live classes in German, Spanish, French, and English, including business English, so you can learn according to a schedule that's convenient to you. One of the things I like best about Lingoda is that you can customize your learning experience within their curriculum. So let's say you're in the beginner Spanish course, but you already know the alphabet, you already know como estas, mucho gusto, etc. Then you can skip over those very beginner classes and jump right into the one that suits your personal level. I myself am in the beginner Spanish course, and it's going great. Uh, I jumped over those very beginner classes and I jumped right into the point in the curriculum that felt right for me. The teachers I've had thus far do a really great job of getting everyone in class to speak. And, you know, we're not just doing questions or solo exercises, but actually speaking to each other in real conversation. Now, I said that this opportunity could be free. So, if you sign up for Lingoda now, you'll be able to participate in the Lingoda Sprint Challenge. If you enroll in 15 classes per month for the next two months and you attend all of those classes, you'll get 50% cash back from your enrollment fee. If you enroll in 30 classes per month for the next two months and attend all of those classes, you'll get 100% cash back. So the thing will be totally free. So if you're up for this Sprint Challenge, there's a deal for Words for Granted listeners. You can follow the direct link in the show notes or go to lingoda.com and enter the promo code RAYSPRINT, all caps, no spaces, at checkout to get $25 off your Sprint Challenge purchase. That's lingoda, L-I-N-G-O-D-A, dot com and promo code RAYSPRINT, no spaces. All right. Back to our conversation with Tracy Weldon. Let's shift to some specifics around the actual features of African American English, the kinds of things that will actually be in this upcoming dictionary. Um, let's start. Let's start with words. What are some African American English words that have crept into standard English? Yeah, so I jotted down a few because I knew I'd draw a blank if I, if I didn't sort of think through that ahead of time. I mean, the interesting thing about the vocabulary is that the African-American speech community really has generated so much of the American lexicon. Um, but so much of it, once it crosses over, as I, I call it, once it crosses over into the mainstream lexicon, it, it over time doesn't get associated with the African-American speech community at all. So, you know, there are some words that I think people would be shocked to, to believe that, you know, they, they were once only used among African-Americans. But some of the ones that I jotted down, and I, I actually did an interview recently where I talked about um, the word shout out uh, to give someone recognition as one that began in the African-American speech community and has, has crossed over to chill or to say that you're chilling is another one where you're talking about just relaxing. Shade is an interesting one because it's one that was really sort of an in-group term. It was an old 
term, I mean, old in the sense that I remember it from my own childhood, that really had sort of remained in group for years, but in the last, I don't know, five, 10 years has sort of crossed over. So if someone, you know, talks about shading someone or the shade of it all or no shade, um, they're, they're meaning no, you know, not to insult you or, or anything. Lit is another one. Um, and woke, right? Which is one that, that you hear quite a bit these days to refer to people who are more progressive. Um, so those are just some examples that I jotted down. There are many others um, that I'm sure our, our dictionary will document, but those are some examples. What about grammatical constructions? What are some unique grammatical constructions in African-American English? Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, as, as linguists, especially with this, this origins debate, we've paid a lot of uh, attention to, you know, things like multiple negation and negative inversion. In my book on middle-class African-American English, I actually talked a bit about um, what are sometimes called camouflaged features that um, look on the surface, at least grammatically, like they are mainstream American English, but have a specialized meaning or, or purpose. Um, a lot of these camouflage features are actually used to communicate, you know, a certain type of mood or modality, you know, things like a stress bend to refer to something that happened in the remote past or habitual beat um, to talk about things that happen habitually, um, but also expressions like call oneself, right? She calls herself being a good cook, but she's horrible, right? So it's a sort of counterfactual type of expression, Indignation is often uh, marked through these camouflage features, like she come up in the room being all nice, but she's really not friendly, um, you know, with a sort of tone of in in indignation. Actually, speaking of tone, what is the importance of, you know, like rhythm, beat, musicality, gesture, things like this in African-American English? I mean, I, I think to, to speak African-American English is, is to understand not just the, the verbal, but the nonverbal cues, right? And so it's, it's difficult to use African-American English appropriately if you don't have the right tone, intonation, expression, eye gaze. Sometimes it's, you know, there's a gesture that goes with it. You know, a lot of African-American English is not written um, it's, you know, very much an oral culture. And so, you know, a lot of those are, are not norms that are taught, but rather learned as being a member of a, spe a speech community. Um, I think that's probably true of language in general. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, can you give us some specific examples of these nonverbal gestures within African-American speech communities? There are two expressions in the African-American speech community that have remained pretty much in, in group for, for years, and they are cutting eyes and sucking teeth, right? And so those are expressions that refer to particular um, nonverbal gestures that express a sort of disgust, you know, to, to suck one's teeth or to, to, to cut eyes without saying anything will communicate that, that you are not pleased with someone. What can you say about hip-hop and the language of hip-hop and the directionality of hip-hop's influence? Um, is African-American English influencing hip-hop or vice versa? 
Yeah, so so it's absolutely true that African American English feeds um, hip hop culture, right? African American English came first, <laughs> and hip hop culture is 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 uh, drawn from African American English. I think people assume that it's the other way around because hip hop is really one of the the many vehicles through which African American English makes its way out of African American homes and communities and into uh, the wider community and globally, ultimately. Do you think there's a risk to African American English declining or, you know, like uh, like flattening over time? People always worry about all of us sounding the same. You know, there was the concern that television would make us all talk the same or the internet. It is my sense that as long as there are groups of speakers who want to carve out unique identities for themselves, that language will serve that purpose. And so for that reason, I, I don't think that African-American English will ever die out. I think it will continue to change and it will probably serve different functions for different generations of speakers. I, I've reflected a bit in thinking about my own linguistic biography about the ways in which um, respectability politics uh, was so important for me growing up. It's, it's, it's uh, plays a large part in you know, why I, I started to code switch so early. I would watch my parents sort of, you know, talk different ways depending on who was around and who was listening. I don't think younger generations of speakers necessarily feel that same pressure. Um, and so if African-American vernacular English is their preferred way of communicating, for many of them, it doesn't matter who's listening, right? And, and of course, you know, with, with any language, you know, younger speakers don't want to use language in the same ways that their parents did. And so they will do different things with the language and it will change. Um, but I don't think that it will die out, at least no time soon because I do think it's a sort of way of representing racial and ethnic affiliation and identity. Um, it's, it, it plays such an important role in that, that I, I don't see that changing anytime soon. Did those early observations when you were, um, when you were observing your parents' code switch as a kid, do you think those influenced your interest in pursuing linguistics professionally? Probably. I didn't recognize it at the time. I was just one of those kids who loved grammar. I don't know why, but it, I found it fun. <laughs> um, and so that's how I found my way to linguistics. Um, I think I first learned about African-American English as a, as a research subject, as something I could study in a modern English grammar course that I took and, and then you know, ended up in graduate school pursuing a, a PhD in linguistics. Now, I know you have a background in studying Gullah Geechee, and I suspect that this is something not this is something that not a whole lot of listeners probably know about. So give us the um, the cliff note summary of what Gullah Geechee is. Sure. So so Gullah Geechee is a Creole language variety. Um, it is English based. I talked uh, earlier about uh, the ways in which linguists use the term Creole to refer to contact varieties that are formed in situations where speakers don't share a mutually intelligible variety. And so they create this new contact variety. Typically in those contact situations, 
there is a group of speakers with more power or prestige than the others. And so that becomes the language that supplies the vocabulary. It's called the lexifier. Um, And so with the Atlantic slave trade, the contact between English and West African languages would have had an English lexifier, which means that the vocabulary is primarily English, but a lot of the um, structural features, the, 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 the syntax, the, the morphology, the, the pronunciation phonological features um, would have had West Af- significant West African influence. And so um, Gullah Geechee would have emerged in, in such context it was spoken in the Carolina colony and extended to, to, to some extent to parts of Georgia and Florida and some even, say, uh, parts of North Carolina when other African-American varieties were undergoing decreolization as they came into closer contact with other English varieties. Gullah Geechee retained its distinctiveness because of the isolation of the Sea Islands where a lot of Gullah speakers, Gullah Geechee speakers resided. Right. So, so Gullah Geechee is still spoken today, but I imagine there's some risk of it dying out as a, as a Creole distinct from other modern African-American Englishes. Is that right? The tourism industry has brought, you know, many non-Gullah Geechee speakers in contact with Gullah Geechee. It has broken up communities. And so there is, some fear, some danger that it might become extinct at some point. In addition to the fact that, like many African-American varieties, there is some stigma associated with speaking it. And so some older generations have discouraged younger speakers from speaking it because of this idea that it is somehow bad or broken, which, of course, we know is a fallacy that is often associated with African-American language varieties in which we are hoping things like uh, this dictionary will help to, to contest and address. But, you know, my, my sense is, as with other African-American English varieties, Gullah Geechee does play an important role in sort of representing a particular identity. And, and you know, I, I, I work and live here in South Carolina, and so I am around a lot of young Gullah Geechee speakers today who are really celebrating their Gullah Geechee identity and, of course, using the language in ways that differ from the ways in which their parents and grandparents used it, but still in ways that are distinctive from other African-American and other Southern American varieties. Yeah, yeah, thank thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, As we bring this episode to a close. If listeners take just one thing away from this episode about African-American English and its speakers, what do you want that to be? I haven't taught in a, in a few years now that I've moved into administration, but my, my students would, would tell me that at least once a week, I would say African-American English is systematic and rule-governed. And I think that's an important point to make because it's really only recently that African-American English even had a name outside of linguistic circles. You know, when I was growing up, that wasn't, that wasn't a, a label that was circulating. Um, certainly wasn't anything I learned in school. You know, there was good English and there was bad English and bad English always seemed to be the English that people who looked like me spoke. 
And so, you know, it's important that as we talk about African-American English, that we acknowledge that it is a language with a system of rules. There are right ways of speaking African-American English and there are wrong ways as with any other language variety. And it is not just that it is a legitimate language, but that it is, it is significantly celebrated in American culture, even if we don't know that it's what we're celebrating. And so again, I do hope that what this dictionary will do is help us to understand that the language that we are often imitating and celebrating is in fact African-American English. And we have the African-American speech community to thank for those contributions. All right. Well, this has been an enlightening conversation. Tracy, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me and best of luck to you and everyone else involved in putting this amazing dictionary together. Thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed it. Okay, that's it for this one, guys. I hope you loved it. Again, if you love the show, I encourage you to leave a rating and review wherever you listen to the podcast. And again, you've heard me say this five million times if you're a regular listener of the show. But if you want to support my research and regular output, you can become a monthly contributor at patreon.com slash words for granted. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time here at Words for Granted.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.